Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Every podcast, I talk to an author about a new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Jan Plamper about his book, The Stalin Cult, A Study in the Alchemy of Power. Jan Plamper begins his book with an illuminating anecdote that demonstrates the power and scope of Stalin's personality cult. The story comes from Artyom Sergeyev, Stalin's adopted son. Sergeyev recalled one night when Stalin learned that his biological son, Vasily, used his famous name to escape punishment from one of his drunken binges. In response to Stalin's rage, Vasily said, But I'm a Stalin too. No, you're not, Stalin rebuffed. You're not Stalin, and I'm not Stalin. Stalin is Soviet power. Stalin is what he is in the newspapers and the portraits, not you, not even me. The production of the Stalin personality cult that disembodied the man and turned him into a symbol of Soviet power is at the center of Plamper's text. At the heart of this cult was Stalin's image, which was reproduced in a variety of media, including portraiture and film. But the crafting, production, and canonization of Stalin's image was no simple endeavor. It involved technologies that gave Stalin's cult a particularly modern flavor. As Plamper shows, the production and dissemination of Stalin's cult involved an entire institutional apparatus, including mass media, artistic unions, art criticism, artistic competitions, individual filters, particularly Stalin's secretaries, and art patrons like Defense Minister Clement Voroshilov, on top of which stood Stalin at the apex. As for Stalin's personal role, Plamper finds that it is best to view Stalin's relationship to his cult as a form of immodest modesty. Stalin wanted his own cult and meticulously controlled it, at the same time he purposely disavowed it. And through this alchemy of institutional and individual power, did Stalin's personality cult penetrate the psyche of the citizenry. For more on Stalin's cult, here's my interview with Jan. Hi, Jan. Hi, Sean. Uh, welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join me to talk about your book, The Stalin Cult, A Study in the Alchemy of Power. Thank you very much for the invitation. Absolutely. So just to get started, why don't you tell me about yourself and how you came to write a book about the Stalin cult? Uh, well, I grew up in the southwest of uh, what was then West Germany in a small university town. And um, uh, I think for a kid um, growing up in the 80s or coming of age in the 80s, uh, in that kind of setting, there were probably four four um, pathways to the Russia bug, to getting, getting infected by things Russian. One was uh, biographical family background. The other was um, uh, political, leftist politics. 
Uh, third was perestroika, and the fourth was Russian literature. And for me, it was uh, leftist politics, uh, Russian literature, and perestroika. Oh, okay. So <laughs> that's how I got started. Uh, then I went off to college in the United States um, on a scholarship to Brandeis University, where I had the good fortune to uh, study with uh, Gregory Fries, who really introduced me um, to uh, Russian history um, and to archival work uh, as well, and the importance of archival work. Um, and after that, I went off to Russia. Uh, this was 1992 uh, to do a, um, a peace service in lieu of my German military service. Um, and I worked uh, for the anti-Stalinist grassroots organization Memorial in oh, St. Wow. Petersburg. Yes, I did social work with uh, four elderly ladies, all of them victims of, of uh, Stalinism and, and Nazism, and um, that was for uh, 18 months. And uh, it was it was of course formative. It was very important for me. And after that, um, I stayed on for another year and started working in the archives. They just opened. Um, and uh, deferred graduate school, entered graduate school uh, in 1995, went to UC Berkeley, where uh, I started this um, um, uh, dissertation on the Stalin cult. I knew I was going to uh, do a dissertation on the Stalin cult before. I'd read uh, Ian Kershaw's uh, book on um, the Hitler myth. Uh, that had deeply impressed me. And there were a couple of other uh, things that came together why I got interested uh, in the Stalin cult. Um, I think it had to do with uh, what I perceived as a general shift from uh, program uh, to images to packaging in Western politics, um, 80s, the Reagan years. Um, uh, it also had to do uh, with uh, early 90s uh, getting to know uh, the new cultural history uh, the general interest in representations and symbols, rituals, um, and uh, the, the visual turn, of course, the turn to um, images as important sources and, and, and um, legitimate sources for historians. I think all of this came together. And so I started uh, studying at Berkeley, and this was a wonderful time. I, I, thought, um, I thought I was um, at the right place at the right time uh, in St. Petersburg between 1992 and, and 1995, and I felt the same way at Berkeley between 1995 and 1999, which is when I went off to... Uh, the archives. So um, I studied under uh, Yuri Slyoskin, who was my main advisor. Uh, Reggie Zelnik was uh, my second reader. And I had two outside readers, um, Vicky Banal and uh, Irina Papirna, who was extremely important, continues to be important, had a formative influence. And it was a great group and a great cohort of people, and you could really find your niche. This was a good time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then so I went off to. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I went off to the archives, 1999-2000, and uh, then wrote the actual dissertation uh, in Berlin, um, uh, and then revised it to, to book, and it just appeared. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you, you have this great uh, complementary lineage of actually working with, in, with Memorial, which I, I imagine really kind of colored seeing the real effects of, of Stalinism on people that you knew, and then, of course, being in Berkeley... Um, which Sloshkin is, is uh, f I can imagine, intellectually formative. Um, so I can see how those two complemented this work. Yes, uh, absolutely, yeah. 
Um, well, you begin the book by giving in a kind of broad sweep of defining what uh, um, modern personality cult is. Uh, if you could talk about that, what a modern personality cult is, and how does it differ from um, other cults of personality? Right. I, I draw a line between modern personality cults and um, uh, pre-modern personality cults. Um, and I make the argument that there are really five features that typify a modern personality cult, and that that Napoleon III was the first instantiation of a modern personality cult. The, the first feature is that they're um, products of mass politics. They're directed at the entire population. Uh, they derive legitimacy from the entire population, not just some uh, small group, some elite group, such as the aristocracy. Uh, the second feature is that they all employ the mass media. So they could reach uh, everyone, the entire population, um, through mass media. Uh, and they're also potentially uniformly readable by the population, which um, has... Uh, uh, been um, which has acquired cultural techniques that are necessary for this through universal schooling, mass conscription, that kind of thing. The third feature is that they're uh, all parts of closed societies. So there's a circumscribed public space, uh, which doesn't allow for the introduction of a rival cult, for example. Um, the fourth to me is that they're all children of a secular age. Uh, there's no such thing as uh, divine right. That is, uh, there's no uh, metaphysical reference that endows the leader with uh, legitimacy. There's also no reference to God inscribed in the body of the leader. There's no such thing as, as divisions of the leader's body, uh, as we know from uh, Kantorowicz. Um, so the body always represents the totality so the, the key thing here is um, um, secular and popular, popular sovereignty. And the fifth and final feature is that they're all really um, uh, male. That is, the cult objects are always men. There are no queens, no tsaritsas. Now, would you, would you, I'm, I'm kind of curious because a lot of people have said, in, in, especially in the Russian context, that some of these, there's a tradition of iconography. And uh, which is very religious based in Russian Orthodoxy, and all the portraits of Lenin and portraits of Stalin is a continuation of that. So, how would you account for the kind of lineages of the past kind of moving into this modern personality cult? For a long time, I thought that the concepts of political theology and political religion were uh, very attractive. Um, when you look at it more closely, uh, you realize that um, if you use these concepts, you're, you won't really capture the specificity uh, of a cult such as Stalin's. That is uh, true, um, Stalin portraits were often hung in a corner of uh, the apartment uh, where earlier icons had hung. True, um, certain colors have the same kind of symbolic valence that we know from uh, Orthodox iconography. Um, true, some of the words that, say, the painters of these Stalin portraits used are words that resurfaced from uh, the language um, of uh, Russian Orthodox uh, iconography. But, for example, you're never going to be able to um, capture the feature of um, 
Stalin's gaze, which is always directed at a point outside the picture. This is not be typical for icons. This can only be understood uh, if you know something about Marxism. Uh, Stalin's gaze is directed to a focal toward a focal point outside the picture because he embodies um, a Hegelian kind of world spirit. He knows where the future uh, is. He knows he can actually gaze into uh, communism, into utopia. Um, the production methods will not be will be much more difficult to capture with uh, concepts from political theology and political religion. This is why I I decided to use to use a, a sort of a um, a mixture of comp, uh, of concepts. Some of them drawn from uh, a sociologist, Edward. Shields, who argues that the center of society is always endowed with uh, sacrality, sacredness, I also call it sacral aura, um, and a, a number of other things. That, to me, proved more productive than um, political religion concepts and direct, kind of, direct kinds of comparisons with, um, with, uh, uh, with iconography. Yeah, I find it interesting that you draw a very... You know, going through, say, the 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 showing of the Tsar and Nicholas II in particular, but really after the revolution with with Lenin and more with Stalin, you have this break that makes it really distinct from saying a continuation. And I found that a very compelling way to look at it. So, I'm going in line with the mass media, um, you you give an enormous importance to Pravda in forming the Stalin cult. Um, why is Pravda so central? I wish, actually, I wish I could, I could have worked through uh, a lot more newspapers, but there are limitations of, of time and space. Um, I did look through all of Pravda from 1928 to 1954, which was quite a bit of work, uh, and I, I do the statistics of it as well. I give, I have, they're in the appendix at the end. But Pravda was, import, was of course, very important. It was, it was uh, the uh, central newspaper, uh, it was um, highly controlled by Stalin himself. Uh, it was a co- it was a kind of compass for uh, various people, among them uh, the painters who actually produced the Stalin portraits in order to follow the uh, the party line. Uh, Pravda was also the place where some of the uh, templates for Stalin portraits, photographic templates were introduced. Some of the photographs uh, that were published in Pravda um, were, were, were then distributed among painters, and they were supposed to paint their Stalin portraits from these uh, photographs. But most important, to me, it's a kind of vehicle to really get at the changes uh, in uh, the representations, the visual representations of Stalin over time. And uh, I there's nothing better than a newspaper like Pravda. So, you know, I looked at it through all of this period, and I could I identified the the um, uh, the kind of uh, uh, high points and uh, the low points uh, of uh, Stalin in the newspaper. So you can see, for example, that it all starts with a kind of big bang with his 50th birthday in December 1929. But then, interestingly. Uh, there's a hiatus, and he only really reappears in mid-1933. Uh, and one can speculate why that is the case, why he was he was not shown in the newspaper between 29 um, and 1933. One of the arguments is that um, 
that they did not want to uh, connect him with, associate him with uh, the um, awful effects of um, collectivization. Uh, there are other arguments as well. But it really takes off in mid-1933 and until um, the, the high point of his 60th birthday in uh, 1939, the newspaper is preoccupied with canonizing uh, Stalin, with uh, showing that he is number one uh, and with introducing a, a set of stock images um, for the leader. And they're specific. You can you can look at the specific strategies that the newspaper uses uh, to set Stalin off from his uh, comrades in arms. So, for example, uh, he's shown uh, in white, um, in a white uniform. Um, even though at that time he probably was not wearing white uniforms, if other people were shown in dark uniforms, his name is um, shown first, um, mentioned first in the caption. Um, everybody in, a, in the Presidium touches their face. He does not. Um, his gaze is directed at a focal point outside the pictures. Others people, other people's gazes are not, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought this was interesting. A um, couple of things that you note is when Stalin doesn't appear. So you also say during the terror, too, that his image goes down. And then also during the war, and they have various... Um, speculation as to why, but also this idea of Stalin in white, uh, which, as you said, he's wearing dark clothes, and they probably just kind of, at one point, you say, pasted in a picture of him in white, because the way he looks is quite unnatural, um, to really to distinguish him out from the rest of his uh, his entourage. You, you also argue that Stalin's spatial arrangement in photos and paintings had great symbolic importance. Um, why did Stalin's place in images matter? Uh, Stalin represented a phase in the history of the Soviet Union uh, where a, an, a certain uh, uh, place had been reached uh, in the uh, timeline uh, that was uh, communism. Stalin represented, especially with the uh, pr promulgation of the Stalin Constitution of 1936, presented, represented a certain arrival in communism. And so if Lenin um, represented the revolution, um, this really shows in his, uh, in his pictorial representations. Lenin's body is always moving outward, forward. Uh, there's usually a hand gesture that moves, um, that, 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 uh, moves away. There's the, you know, the raised hand that we all know. Um, this is typical for Lenin and the revolution. For Stalin, Stalin is the central, is the center of... Um, uh, concentric circles that are uh, built around him, and you can you can see this in a number of pictures uh, where really Stalin um, uh, embodies the center uh, of these concentric circles, uh, and it's only his gaze that that leads out of this uh, center, his gaze that is directed towards uh, the future of communism, and we have verbal um, examples uh, where. Uh, both the painters and critics interpret his gaze in precisely this way. Um, so uh, that's the, the typical representation uh, of Stalin in pictures. It's also a verbal representation. If you look at the short course of the Bolshevik party, um, you notice that um, the construction of the party, the party history is represented as the gathering of circles uh, 
it starts with a smaller circle, uh, a Marxist circle, and then other circles are added uh, on. And I use um, probably the most famous Stalin painting, Stalin and Varashilov um, in the Kremlin, 1938, painted by the star painter of the 1930s, Alexander Gerasimov. Um, I use that painting in order to illustrate this point uh, and to show how that painting is organized uh, in circles, concentric circles, around the central figure of Stalin. Mm-hmm. And talk about that painting a little bit more because you also go into the, the how the the way the painting reflects the actual um, city of Moscow itself as centers of power in relationship to the other mon- potential monuments like the Palace of Soviets, but, but other um, architectural or uh, places in the city. Well, one of the interesting features of that painting is that the, the balustrade behind uh, Stalin and Varashilov uh, is broken at, a, at one point. And you can see that um, this is most certainly done in order to create a visual axis between the two leaders uh, and the people who are gathered on the Moscow embankment on the other side of the river Moskva. Uh, they're demonstrating. Um, it's probably some... Um, uh, made a demonstration or some kind of a demonstration. This is done, uh, I argue, in order to create a connecting axis between the people, the Narod, uh, and the leaders. Then you can see that there are smokestacks in another uh, circle behind this group of people on the embankment of the river uh, Moskva. Um, and only behind that, in another and yet another uh, concentric circle can you see the cupolas uh, of an old uh, Russian Orthodox church so one could one could argue that this is the old Russia that has been overcome there are many different readings that are possible one of the readings um, is that Stalin's gaze in this painting is actually directed towards the palace of Soviets which was never built um, uh, and that uh, the palace of Soviets uh, House of Soviets was supposed to feature a statue, a huge statue uh, of Lenin. It was the palace was supposed to be higher than the Empire State Building, and so one could say that um, uh, you know the continuer's gaze is directed toward the founder uh, Lenin. So the continuer of Lenin's um, cause um, looks back towards the founding uh, moment. One could also argue that there is that there is a visual axis continuing from. Um, the Palace of Soviets onto um, the mon- a, a monument that was going to be built, the monument of the Stalinist Constitution, uh, 1936 Constitution. And that way, um, his gaze becomes more autoreferential because it's a moment, of course, that he created. It was his uh, Constitution, or represented as such. Yeah, I thought that your analysis, this kind of thick description of this painting and all the elements in it and how they relate to even, you know, monuments, even things outside the painting was actually quite interesting so uh, thanks for the elaboration on that um one of the questions that people always have and including myself is stalin's personal relationship to this cult you know how did he feel about it what did he think about it how did he control it um so if you could talk a bit about stalin's relationship his personal relationship with this cult and in particular how did he control it so the the public representation of Stalin's relationship to his own cult was one of grudging tolerance. He had to tolerate this cult because 
the people truly loved him and um, Soviet Russia was the first truly democratic society uh, since the people loved him, since legitimacy rested with the people, uh, he had to accept this cult. Um, but when you uh, look closer, you notice very quickly um, that in a polity such as the Soviet Union, no phenomenon of uh, the dimensions of the Stalin cult could have ever existed without his uh, acceptance. So this, this public representation of him tolerating the cult grudgingly was really um, deployed in order to overcome the paradox of a personality cult in a polity that claimed to be implementing um, a collectivist ideology. This was a, the Stalin cult was an oxymoron, and, and it, never, it never really quite got out of this paradox. Um, you know, there, there were the, the, the Hitler cult, uh, the cult of the Duce, Mussolini, they really had no qualms about um, being cults. They were, um, there were no uh, ideological uh, barriers uh, to these uh, cults with the Führer principle, principle and uh, the theory, uh, the Nietzschean theory of the uh, uh, super um, man. There was really no problem with that. And that shows, by the way, um, should say this parenthetically, uh, in the archival situation, you know, for the Hitler cult, as far as we know, um, there are central archives. There's the archive, the Ministry of Propaganda of Goebbels Ministry, that's important. So it was, it was the archival documents were uh, deposited in a central, um, in a central place. There's no such thing for the Stalin cult. There's no uh, archival collection uh, named Stalin cult. They're scattered all over the place, and often they're hidden, and it's quite difficult if to I, get it. You start. If I may interrupt, yes. I mean, one of the, the interesting things you point out is that there's actually the archive is split in this respect, where there is in Stalin's personal archive there that, that has been available, there is materials that have been collected, in some cases even falsified, for his biography that was never written but planned to be written. And then everything else, the other stuff that that shows Stalin's more, you know, uh, being okay with his cult comes from the presidential archive. So you have this kind of interesting um, purposeful split in the archive, if you can talk a little bit about that, too. Yes, exactly. Uh, It's a very interesting story. So uh, the Stalin archive at the uh, Central Party archive, Ergaspi in Moscow, um, Stalin Depository is called uh, 558, Fond 558, um, is split in different uh, parts. And uh, if you first look at it, um, uh, there are are all kinds of documents, if you will, in the upper reaches of the archive. You start your excavation, your archaeological excavation, the upper reaches, you encounter documents where Stalin actually protests his cult. Somebody suggests to write a children's book about Stalin, he says no. Uh, there's a movie scenario where um, uh, uh, he's supposed to be at the head of uh, some kind of demonstration. No, he crosses himself out and so, and so on. But then there is another part of the archive, um, the, the famous uh, Opus um, 11 that had been um, sent to the presidential archive during the uh, coup d'etat of August uh, 1991. Um, uh, which just uh, was returned during the 1990s and opened uh, to researchers in 2000. This uh, 
uh, Opus 11 uh, actually shows that Stalin did control his cult, um, that um, he was uh, um, the mastermind, that he was, that there was, he was the Archimedean point. There were, of course, various institutions that participated in the making of the cult, but they were always directed toward Stalin, um, ostensibly his secretariat, but there are some instances that show, uh, or that at least uh, make it very probable that some of the uh, cult products moved to Stalin's desk uh, as well. And how did he, I mean, one of the things you talk about is this kind of filtering process where that it involves his subordinates, his secretary, and then in some cases Stalin himself um, appro- personally approving the use of certain images and photographs. Uh, what role did these filters play in, in, cre- in creating the cult? Well, they were, they were uh, important for the canonization of uh, new images. So you have to imagine this cult was an, an, a phenomenon of enormous proportions. And there was uh, a semi-autonomously functioning system uh, of this cult, um, a very complex uh, system, but it functioned semi-autonomously. It involved all kinds of organizations, institutions. It involved the artist associations. Uh, it involved the censorship boards, the secret police, the publishing outlets, uh, visual factories, Isa Kombinata, and so on. But when a new representation of Stalin uh, was introduced, uh, it often had to go up to the very pinnacle of power. And there are some instances where uh, we find, there's one instance where um, one of his uh, secretaries writes to, the, to um, an editor of a newspaper who had uh, asked whether a certain new Stalin representation could be uh, published in the newspaper, where that, um, 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 uh, well, that um, secretary gets asked, uh, show it to Stalin. He's actually saying, show it to Stalin, please. And he answers, um, uh, he's against it, um, so don't publish it. Later, uh, after the war, I discovered that there was a more, a more um, uh, regularized system. There was actually a number of portraits uh, or posters were uh, uh, sent to the secretary, and then they just um, added pluses or minuses or what to change and so on. But so, so the secretariat, and most certainly Stalin, and but another thing too, you you talk about too, which I found quite interesting, is per, patron-client networks uh, that were integral to the to cultural production of Stalin. In particular, the role, the very vital role of Clement Voroshilov. Uh, talk about his role as a patron of the arts. Absolutely, Voroshilov is crucial. Voroshilov, um, interest in the arts goes back to the Civil War, uh, when he was he was a Civil War general, and there were. Um, paintings that were done, portraits that were done of uh, Civil War generals uh, during the Civil War, and these generals were actually able to distribute uh, rare uh, resources, such as painting materials and so on, uh, sometimes food, uh, to the artists. And he was also important in the um, uh, Commission for the Memorialization of um, uh, the Memory of Lenin. Uh, after Lenin's death, uh, that was set up um, and uh, 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 ended up planning the mausoleum. So he had some experience in that kind of uh, cult building. Lenin cult being another important 
kind of milestone um, uh, on the path uh, towards the Stalin cult. Um, and uh, and he became uh, an important patron of painters in the realist uh, tradition. He became personal friends with them. He actually collected uh, paintings. He had an entire collection of uh, Piritvizhnik wanderer paintings and uh, contemporary socialist realist paintings that, that burnt because his grandson, after the war, uh, played with... Um, uh, matches. This oh, is something I deco- discovered in, 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 in his wife's Ekaterina Varashilova's uh, diary. Um, and he was very important uh, uh, in the Stalin cult. So he would uh, broker access. Um, uh, he would broker access to Stalin, who could only be painted at public um, at public okay, on public occasions when he would give a speech in the Bolshoi, for example. This was really the only time that painters could um, produce new sketches of Stalin because he would not sit, he would not model. Um, uh, we know that he did model in the 1920s before he really uh, came to power. He, um, there's a, a famous Stalin drawing of 1922 by Nikolai Andreev. And we also know <clears throat> that he sat for a sculptor by the name of Marina uh, Rinzunska in 1926. But as far as I was able to uh, figure out, he never really sat again during the 1930s. Um, and many other high Bolsheviks, high-ranking Bolsheviks uh, didn't sit either because Bolsheviks do not model. Modeling is frivolous. It's, it's something that you don't do. It's not in sync with... Um, uh, the values of, of, of a true um, Bolshevik. Um, and so one, the only occasion was really to get privileged access when he was, uh, when he gave a, a speech uh, or some such. Um, uh, the, uh, another thing that they did, they would hire um, so-called uh, sitters, naturshiki, people who shared his height, who shared Stalin's height, uh, who sometimes looked similar, who could at least put on uh, his clothes. So we know, uh, I know, for example, from interview with uh, Alexander Gerasimov's uh, son-in-law, Vladimir Shabernikov, um, that Shabernikov, Shabernikov claims that he sat uh, for Stalin and that he actually wore his overcoat, <laughs> which they got from the Kremlin and used his pipe and so on. Um, they got these props from the Kremlin. Um, but this is something that, that, was not, that did not enter public discourse um, during this time. And, and and in addition to individuals, of course, you also and you mentioned this a little while ago, the in very important role institutions play in crafting the Stalin canon. I mean, artist institutions, educational publishing houses, and also police, the secret police. Talk a bit about how the the practices of these institutions created the canon of Stalin. Okay, well, it's it's a very comp- it's a maze. It's really a maze that's very difficult to cut through. Uh, I tried to do that in the fifth chapter. Um, uh, so there were uh, certain uh, practices that are uh, art Soviets that would discuss uh, paintings um, and that would, would often invite a painter and give him concrete um, instructions how to change his painting. And I, have the, I was able to find the protocols of some of these art Soviet discussions of certain paintings. And they, to me, are really... Um, uh, they go to the heart of uh, 
of socialist realism that go to the heart of uh, portraying the leader. Uh, this is socialist realism um, in practice, in situ. Um, you know, socialist realism, there's a big discussion of what socialist realism actually was, whether it was a set of doctrines, whether it was a, a style. Um, to me, it's precisely these uh, kinds of practices that actually made up uh, socialist realism. So you'll find a discussion of a painting by a painter, uh, not well-known painter, an obscure painter by the name of Yeroshev, a painting about uh, Lenin's funeral. And you'll you'll have famous artists in the art Soviet actually explaining to this painter, he's present, um, why he didn't, why he didn't, um, uh, why didn't exe execute this painting the way he was supposed to. Um, and uh, for example, uh, it was connected, he, they were unhappy with uh, the size of the various leaders and the place uh, of Stalin in this picture. It was entirely clear to them that um, this should not be a uh, mimetic representation of what actually happened or what Yerushev thought that actually happened, but it should, it should represent the um, quasi-dynastic progression of the world spirit from Lenin's body to Stalin's body, and that had to be expressed in this painting. And that's how they, how they uh, uh, explicated it to him. Portrait competitions were very important, especially in the early phase of the Stalin cult in the early 1930s uh, when the canon was still forming. There were portrait competitions organized by publishing houses or by artist uh, uh, institutions uh, and some, paper, some painters, important well-known painters would be invited uh, personally but there was also an open competition in the newspaper for cultural workers, Sovietsky Iskustva, that most of them read um, and there was a prize that we could win. In later years, this, this became a less important uh, way of producing um, uh, uh, portraits. What about the police? How did they play a role? Well, the police was always present. It, it, the, in artist's lore, um, everyone knew who was uh, an informer. Um, and the police, um, there are some uh, cases in which uh, the police um, punished uh, painters who uh, created representations that of, of Stalin that were deemed uh, that were other leaders that were deemed um, uh, heterodox. Uh, so there's, there's the a case of of one painter who uh, uh, painted uh, the funeral of Kirov, and um, he was accused of actually of um, uh, showing a, a skull that supposedly shown uh, that 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 one was supposedly to discern through the paper it's shown through the through the actual uh, painting so there was there was um there was a, a, a kind of uh, a kind of um over interpretation especially during the years of the terror uh, of these images this is of course a very very sensitive uh, matter yeah and it seems that it through all of these institutions is kind of like a creation of an ethics of representing Stalin through these discussions and kind of disciplining one another and critiquing one another to really by what would you say the 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 war or even somewhat after the war you get a, a very hard canon as how Stalin is supposed to be represented right during the, it's really during the war during, during the during the war at first um in 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 places like Pravda uh 
Stalin's re Stalin representations get noticeably scaled back. And he only really returns towards the end of the war uh, when victory is certain. And a, you have a different kind of Stalin who returns. It's a Stalin who uh, has gray hair, his uh, uh, generalissimo uniform, the white parade uniform after the war. And you also get uh, what I call absent uh, representations. So you have representations in which he's only present on the um, uh, enlightened, enthused faces of listeners who are sitting in front of a radio receiver, for example, or on the faces of young boys uh, who are returning from a Stalin, uh, from a demonstration. Uh, and, and also, as, as you say, the canon uh, was really, uh, became quite, um, uh, the, the canon became a, an, an almost ossified, uh, you get an almost ossified kind of canon, and you also notice this in um, art criticism. So a number of, of what they call obrze, um, uh, images, uh, develops uh, Stalin as father of peoples, for example, or Stalin as the builder of communism, Streitelkommunisme, or Stalin uh, as uh, the post-war generalissimo. And for each of these obrazy, for each of, all, each of these uh, verbal designations, you get a set um, um, of uh, visual attributes that are always uh, shown in connection with these. So the father of people is always shown with uh, ethnic minorities. The builder of communism, Streitze Kommunisme, always with the factories and tractors of the first year, five-year plan. Uh, the post-war uh, generalissimo always in his uh, white uniform. In fact, you have you have art historical uh, dissertations, kandidatske uh, dissertatsi, doctoral dissertations that are written at this time, often by the painters themselves and by the sculptors themselves, that consist of nothing but um, a, a, a short kind of uh, explication of one of these obrazi, uh, so a kind of enumeration of these attributes, nothing more. The other big question, too, is is how did the public respond to this? And you, you dwell on this in, in one of the chapters, how people responded to expositions of uh, Stalin's image and what they wrote in these commemorative books. Talk a bit about how it was recepted by the public. Well, I, I do have some uh, mythological uh, doubts about actually being able to reconstruct how the public received uh, the cult of Stalin. Um, other people do too, uh, and so what? What I actually try to reconstruct the ways in which um, the producers of the cult try to ascertain how people reacted to the paintings, and how these um, how these uh, public reactions to the cult uh, were included uh, in the actual cult production as a kind of feedback loop. So, for example. Um, I, I found uh, these comment books from some of the Stalin uh, exhibits where people uh, left comments uh, about the paintings they encountered. And rather than uh, read them as a kind of um, face value reactions uh, to the paintings, many of them are very formulaic, um, uh, I looked at how they came to figure at artist meetings uh, where certain art was critiqued. So, um, and they did figure. Some of uh, the art functionaries and the art critics actually looked through the comment books and, uh, as one of them put, put it, 
translated them into the numerical idioms. So he used certain words and assigned Russian grades to them, and then uh, uh, kind of uh, assigned a GPA to uh, 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 one or the other painter, and used this uh, in a discussion. And this was important um, because, of course, this art understood itself as being from the people and for the people. Uh, this was not, and they, they made this point uh, time and again, this was not bourgeois art that was only for uh, a certain part of the people, but for uh, the entire people. Uh, so and I also tr trace changes in uh, these uh, uh, attempts to ascertain the public's reaction to Stalin paintings. So for example, in the beginning, comment books, Knigi Odzovov, uh, comment books uh, had, a mar had margins uh, and visitors would actually comment on visitors' comments. Um, so, so one of the functions of these, of these um, early comment books was to also educate um, uh, visitors to an exhibit how to be cultured, kulturne uh, uh, visitors to an exhibit, how to go to a museum. Later on, um, there were no such things as margins. The comment books themselves became much more, um, looked much more solid, leather clad, and so on. And with some of the Stalin exhibits, actually, there were no more comment books, but there were boxes in which people uh, dropped pieces of paper. And as one of the curators of one of these uh, Stalin exhibits um, uh, told me, I was able to interview her, she said that uh, this was in order to... Um, uh, to filter out uh, hooligan uh, comments uh, on on so so these comments became much more um, um, uh, self representation uh, representational uh, auto representational and but the comment books returned during the Khrushchev era um, became one of the important institutions uh, of a kind of connecting line a kind of channel between the regime and the people uh, during the Khrushchev uh, era. I also examined celebrity evenings, Tvorchevsky uh, Vichera. So I found this um, this uh, collection of uh, little uh, notes, often on scrap paper, sent to the stage, on which one of the actors uh, who played Stalin, Alexei Diki, during these evenings, people from the audience would pass anonymous comments, questions to Diki, and he would then answer them. And I found some of those. And they're quite interesting. People ask, for example, why uh, Diki portrays Stalin without the characteristic accent, the Georgian accent, that they were used to Gilavani, Mikhail Gilavani, who was uh, Georgian um, uh, by ethnic origin and had a thick Georgian accent, just like uh, Stalin. And uh, Diki to them was in Congress. Also, the way he moved, he, he, used, uh, he moved a lot more. He was less static than um, Gilavani. And at the very end, in uh, the fall of Berlin, uh, Gilavani actually returned to the role of uh, Stalin. Mm -hmm. And what? And I was going to ask you about this it, Stalin's portrayal on film, because this, of course, is a very modern aspect of the cult, um, and and the performance of these two men and how they portrayed Stalin, and and why did say Gilavani was the first actor, and then they moved to Diki? Um, and talk a bit about how they performed Stalin. Okay, well, it's interesting. First of all, it's interesting that an actor, that actors played uh, Stalin, right? We don't have this kind of thing uh, for 
the Hitler cult, uh, for example. Uh, Hitler is not played by actors. Um, and one could, argue, one, could argue, one could make an argument that this is because um, Stalin's speaking, his speaking style, which is very uh, kind of reserved uh, in comparison to Hitler's, for example. Stalin's speaking style was um, deliberately set off against um, what was identified uh, as Hitler's hysterical uh, speaking style. You know, this is an important thing uh, to remember that all of these modern personality cults actually were entangled, entangled through the mass media, and they emerged entangled from uh, the First World War. So uh, that certain features of um, Stalin's, the portrayal of Stalin's body had a latent feature in another uh, leader uh, in one of the other authoritarian states in Europe. And uh, Stalin's speaking style was one of these things. And actually, uh, Henri Barbus, uh, Stalin, the Stalin's biographer, remarks on this, that uh, Stalin does not need this kind of um, bombastic uh, hysterical speaking style. So one could say that since his speaking style was more reserved, uh, he was ideally he was ideally suited to actually be played by an actor. Okay, and so the first Stalin movie uh, is released in 1937, uh, Lenin Vaktibria, and it's actually uh, Semyon Goldstab who plays Stalin in this uh, movie. Uh, and it's only a couple of movies later that uh, Mikhail Gilavani, um, uh plays Stalin. He, but he, in the public perception, uh, certainly becomes the celluloid Stalin. He's, he's most uh, easily identified uh, with Stalin. Uh, and then after the war, we don't know why, of course, uh, but it's very much possible that it was connected with the kind of um, move towards um, uh, Russian nationalism uh, in the late 40s. Uh, we see a shift to Diki. Diki would actually sat in the Gulag uh, for an economic, uh, for an econ- with, in connection with an economic uh, case, uh, as far as we know. But he gets reactivated and he starts playing uh, Stalin, a russified Stalin, without the Georgian accent and, um, and uh, less statically than uh, Gilavani did. Uh, in the end, um, uh, Gilavani returned. Now, as we as we we know, the Stalin cult, of course, uh, with Stalin's death, and then finally with Khrushchev's speech, and then de-Stalinization in general. Uh, faded, uh, one could say, at least officially, uh, from uh, Soviet and Russian consciousness. Um, but still, one of the things that struck me when I was in Russia in 2009 was the um, public discourse about Stalin's image being in public. Um, for example, during the 75th anniversary of the Moscow Metro, there was an outcry in the media, in the liberal media in particular, that one of the posters in the Metro had Stalin's image from a picture of the first metro train. Uh, also, during um, Victory Day parades, there's always a discussion about what place does Stalin play, uh, his his image play in, in the celebration of Victory Day. Um, if you could talk a bit about what are the legacies of the Stalin cult in Russia? Well, this is a huge topic, actually, and I'm not the ideal expert on this. Polly Jones uh, wrote a dissertation and is writing a book uh, about the uh, legacy of the Stalin cult uh, and about de-Stalinization. Um, but I can, I can say a couple of things. Certainly in post-Soviet Russia, 
the Stalin is a is uh, one of the key uh, battlegrounds about um, Russian contemporary identity, right, and its relation to the past, and it's always connected with with um, uh, the last remaining foundational myth of the Soviet Union, the victory in World War II and the Great pa Patriotic War, um, and um, and so a lot of contemporary debates actually revolve around uh, the question of Stalin, even if they are not really connected with uh, Stalin, uh, Stalin proper, Stalin himself. Um, so yes, you're right. Um, there were many instances of this kind. Uh, for example, in uh, 2010, um, the, the the Moscow mayor Lushkov. Uh, gave in to uh, veteran uh, groups a uh, demand to carry Stalin portraits uh, at the annual May Day, at the annual uh, Victory Day, I'm sorry, May 9th uh, celebrations. And they were also going to put up posters of Stalin uh, in central places in Moscow. And uh, a new, there was a new wave of debate about um, Stalin's place in Soviet history and about um, uh, post-Soviet Russian identity. That's what actually what's actually uh, what was at stake at that time, and um, uh, we now know that most certainly um, this was this was uh, launched in order to then sack the mayor uh, to sack Lushkov during the summer, uh, which is what happened. But um, during that debate, um, there was certainly a discussion about this. In fact, my the Russian edition of this book appeared just at that time. Uh, in uh, early 2010, and it was interesting to see to see the Russian reception. There were some people, some Democrats, who would use it and who would um, uh, kind of assail uh, uh, contemporary Russian image politics, uh, uh, the representation of Putin, um, uh, using that book as a kind of political argument. And there were others um, who would uh, accuse me of foreign intervention. And we're very unhappy uh, about this book. So it, it ended up in the, uh, it ended up being in the center of a, of a, of a broader public debate that I'd never, uh, never expect. No, that's interesting. I mean, especially with with the the betrayal of Putin, particularly in all these very staged, masculine, uh, you know, photo ops of him performing all sorts of athletic and and scientific feats. Um, it really does remind, and I think it, it certainly does remind people of, of you know, a kind of reemergence of a cult of personality or a personality cult in, around the image of Putin. What, what this book might do, um, it's at least my hope, in, in uncovering um, the principle, what I call immodest modesty, that is the portrayal of uh, Stalin's grudging uh, tolerance for his cult, uh, but his, his uh, actual uh, opposition to it. Um, um, I think that principle will be more difficult to um, uh, deploy in, in, uh, in uh, the uh, image politics of uh, contemporary Russian politicians, including Putin. So, you know, you, it'll, I hope it'll be more difficult to rename uh, a mountain after Putin through some kind of popular initiative than having Putin 
resist for a while, but finally give in because, after all, Russia is a democratic country. Right, right. Well, let's let's hope that is the case. Um, let's hope that is the case. So, I mean, it's a fascinating book, and, and I think it does have a – particularly in thinking about uh, the place of, of you know, all – the use of personality cults in in modern society in general, but also I think in I think there's as you say in in closed societies and how we understand their production um, is, is really important. Uh, just to wrap up the interview, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, I'm I'm, re- I'm finishing a so so I'm putting finishing touches on a book that will be out later this. Uh, spring, early summer. Uh, it's a general introduction to the history of emotions. So I've moved to very different topics, uh, including including ethno, including uh, cultural anthropological approaches to emotions and life science, neuroscience approaches to emotions. Um, and that book uh, was a spin-off of a project uh, that I started a couple of years ago. Uh, I moved back to the pre-revolutionary. Uh, late Tsarist era and started working on fear among uh, Russian soldiers, um, especially uh, leading up to the First World War, and um, and was got very interested in the history of emotions and soon discovered that there were so many uh, theoretical mythological problems associated with this that I had to sit down and actually uh, get some sense about how to deal with these. This, so this is the this is the result of that, and after that, I'll return to my fear project. It's a project about soldierly fear. That's great. That that's something I, actually I'm interested in too. Um, but uh, well, great. That sounds wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a wonderful interview. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I've been speaking with Jan Pampler about his book, The Stalin Cult: A Study in the Alchemy of Power. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And if you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. Until next time, goodbye. Денег все не соберем, 